The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have tonight to gather and to study your word. We thank you for the blessings of this local church. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ so we can know and be known. And we thank you for the perfection, the greatness of your word. Pray that you would be with us tonight as we uh, begin uh, a very powerful and a very deep journey uh, through one of the most important passages and parts of Scripture. Uh, So we pray that you'd give us assistance, uh, teach us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've not done Romans in a number of months, uh, so we are resuming our study in Romans that uh, we took a break uh, through the summer. And so now we're resuming at Romans chapter 9 and looking at uh, this chapter, Romans 9, the beginning of one of the most uh, uh, powerful and the most controversial sections of Scripture, uh, one of the deepest and uh, vital to understand. So uh, let's look together at Romans 9, and I would love to have someone read um, or maybe have a couple of people read all of Romans 9 for us. And I'll make some initial comments. And then I've given you my discussion questions, which I wrote a number of years ago, and we're going to walk through them. I think they really just get at the text very well. Um, And we'll just use those discussion questions as a basis for our uh, walking through this text. So um, the chapter is uh, 33 verses long. So why don't I get somebody to read up through verse, uh, let's say a good break point would be verse 18. Someone read 9, 1 through 18, and someone else 19 to the end. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself would be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate him. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God 
who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Good. Somebody else, uh, 19 to the 33. You will say to me then, why does he find, still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for, for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the stand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? But because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All right, fantastic. So we have a lot to discuss. We're not going to get as far even as the two discussion sheets I gave you, which take us up through verse 13. I don't see any way we're going to do that, and I don't see any benefit in hurrying through these uh Verses. It may be that you will never be in a Bible study like this one again, going carefully through Romans 9, verse by verse. Maybe you will. I clearly have more than once because I uh, wrote these questions and we walked through it in men's uh, Bible study on Thursday. But it's, uh, it's not common to have the chance to walk through these, uh, these verses and try to learn from them. So let's try to understand what this is all about. I would uh, argue that Romans 9, 10, and 11, these three chapters, um, are positioned in the book of Romans to answer a very powerful, a very important question. Uh, and that question has to do with the Jews. It has to do with the Jewish nation. All three chapters, this is the dominant theme. And so that Paul would do this kind of thing shouldn't surprise us. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters uh 8 through 10, he gives us three chapters on meat sacrifice to idols, all right? In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he gives us three chapters on spiritual gifts, especially tongues and prophecy. So it wouldn't surprise us that he gives us three chapters on, I think, an even more important theme in the Bible, and that is the fate of the Jews. And specifically, the issue here is, 
what shall we say about the sovereignty of God? What shall we say about the power of God's word when the overwhelming majority of Jews are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah? That's the problem I believe that Paul is seeking to address. What shall we say that this says about God? What shall we say that it says about God's word when the overwhelming majority of genetic descendants of Abraham, uh, the, the Jews that we recognize, the physical descendants of Abraham are rejecting Christ. That's three chapters of answer to that question. So it's not an easy question to answer. And Paul walks through very systematically and carefully. So let me just position it. We ended with chapter eight being one of the most dramatic and encouraging chapters in all of the Bible. Um, if you look at the very end, uh, he says in verses 37 through 39 of chapter 8, Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you can imagine no division between chapter eight and nine, but we just continue on in the epistle, he turns right away from that into this question concerning the state of the Jews. So why is this a problem? Why does he want to address this issue? Why three chapters to address the question? Simply put, what about the Jews? Well, he said all along, we are his chosen people. Who would think they would be addressed in salvation. Okay. Anyone else? Why does he pick up this topic and, and uh, bring it up at this point in Romans? Well, remember that the purpose of the book of Romans overall, uh, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is what? It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, Right. So the gospel is a powerful thing. It is powerful to save. And it ends, uh, as he walks through, eight chapters of explaining gospel doctrine, systematically walking step by step through. He comes to this crescendo saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So why this question? Mark, go ahead, brother. Well, as I told you, this is a cataclysmic. And the problem is that if we cannot trust God to fulfill his word to the Jews, we can't trust him for that. Why would we trust him for this Romans 8 that we just got out of the pinnacle chapter to the entirety of, of any type of literature? All the promises that we have in 8 called justified, glorified. That all goes into the trash if God cannot be trusted to keep his promises to Abraham and the Jews. Very good. And you and you and I talked the other day and zeroed in on verse 6a as the problem that Paul seems to be trying to solve. Someone read verse 6 again, 9-6. Um, you know, just the whole verse, but I'll, I'll talk about why this is the problem that Paul is trying to solve. I'm going to read it, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
Okay, so let's not worry about the second half of the verse yet. It's what he's going to get to. But what problem is he addressing in the first part of verse 6? What does it say? What is he concerned about in the first part of verse 6? By the way, this is a question and answer format Bible study. Just wanted you to know that. This is not a sermon tonight, all right? The word of God has not okay. It is not as though God's word has failed. Would that be a problem if God's word has failed? Why would it be a problem for Christians if God's word can fail? Our eternity depends on Okay. Yeah. If any of it's imperfect, all of it's imperfect. You can throw out the whole thing. Right. So we've had eight chapters of God's word, right? That's a lot of word. Can we take any of it seriously? If, it got, if God's word to the Jews can fail, God's word in Romans 1 through 8 can fail. But he refutes it saying, it is not as though God's word has failed thereby. Because the Jews are rejecting Christ, don't think of that as a failure of God's word. That's what he's getting at here. And he's trying to explain. He's going to explain why. It's not as though God's word has failed, but this is the thing he's worried about. This is the thing he's concerned about. His concern ultimately is with the honor of God. His, his concern is with the sovereignty of God and with his power and uh, his word. For example, if you look at um, the second sheet I gave you, um, and there's a very important verse, it's, it's well known, uh, so... Uh, look at Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, which is on that second sheet. These are stapled, two different Bible studies. Uh, I stapled them in there. I don't know why I did that. I knew there was zero chance we were getting to the second sheet, but I thought, who knows? Maybe we'll cut through it all like a hot knife through butter, and we'll get to the second sheet. No chance. But anyway, someone read Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. And a stone come down from heaven. And do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. All right. So how is that relevant to what what Paul is trying to address here. These are very famous. You've heard this many, many times. What is Isaiah 55 claiming? God's word does not return void. What does that mean for God's word to return void? Well, it looks like it's returning void if the Jewish people don't respond to it. But he's saying that's not true. It does finally become effective for Gentiles. Right. So God's word returning void is... It does not achieve the purpose for which he sent it. Isn't that what the language is in Isaiah? It, it did not achieve the reason he sent out his word. So it'd be like God saying, let there be light. And whatever it is that was hearing that said, yeah, I don't think so. And there is no light. Could that ever happen for God to say, let there be light. And then nothing happens. That cannot be. God does everything by his word. He created the heavens by the word of his power and by the breath of his mouth with the starry host made. That's how it happens. It said early in Romans four, God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. 
That's the whole Abraham story. He didn't have a child. He didn't have a son. He's going to get into all that uh, with Isaac and, and you know, Rebecca, that whole story. He, he said, let there be a child and there's a child. God doesn't fail. His word doesn't fail ever. So his, Paul's zeal here is, is so that God's honor will not be impugned, that God's word would not be seen as a hit or miss thing. And why is that? Because he's going to say in the next chapter, faith comes from hearing the word. And when we hear the word and believe we're saved, our sins are forgiven. And so if God's word can fail, then we are lost. We have, have no uh, salvation. So that's what he's getting after here. Uh, what, what Mark said, it's cataclysmic. That was the word we talked about. What, why would this be cataclysmic if God's word could fail? You know, Piper was very emotional and, and he's just, he, he took him eight years to get through priests, through uh, Romans. And so after four years, he's gotten up to Rome 9. Okay, so we're going to be here a while tonight, Mark. Is that what you're saying? We're going to be here a while. <laughs> so, but the word kind of is appropriate here because he'd spent four years preaching to his flock. All these wonderful promises that are just good. They don't matter if, if the Jews are cursed and cut off. They just don't matter. Yeah, that's, that's the issue here. God wants us to know that we can trust his word. He wants us to know that our salvation, having been entrusted to his word, is in a safe place. Nothing can, can stop his word from succeeding. He wants us to know that. Now, with all of this, it has to do with our assurance. All right? It has to do with our confidence. It, it seems pretty obvious to me that the soaring assurance-laden language of Romans 8 is for our benefit so that we would have confidence, that we would have hope and confidence and assurance. But that's scuttled. If you're a Gentile believer in Jesus and you know almost nothing about Jewish history, and then you start finding out that the same God who sent Jesus did a whole bunch of stuff with a people known as the Jews, and it seemed like that whole thing failed. So then he goes on to what? Plan B now? How would you know that this second plan is going to be any more successful than the first plan? You see, that's the whole issue here. There's this long heritage, this long history. He depicts it as a cultivated olive tree with a developed root system, and the Gentiles are latecomers to it. And if that whole thing's a mess and that whole thing's a failure and all that, then where do we get any confidence, et cetera? but none of that is true. It just seems like it is, right? It seems like God has failed with the Jews. And not only that, it seems like he continues to fail, right? What percentage of people who claim to be physical descendants from Abraham, the Jews, believe in Jesus as their Messiah? What would we think is the percentage of the people alive right now? 5%? I, I don't know the answer. I wouldn't, I'd be, I feel like I might be happy if it were five to 10% of the Jews, not overall big picture happy, but I mean, anecdotally happy. Uh, so you're from a Jewish background. What, what percentage? 2%. 2%? No, I'm talking about you. Yeah. 2% of your relatives, aunts, uncles? You know, one. Okay. <laughs> That's not, not very. So this is going on now. This is, it's happening now. And we could say, you could freeze frame it every generation. 
This is going on for 2,000 years since Jesus came. It's not like there was some massive revival in the 17th century among Jews and then it lapsed back. It's just every single generation, the over overwhelming majority of Jews are rejecting Jesus. I was in Saudi Arabia when we had, we took soldiers to an island to have the Passover. And I was surprised how many of them said to me, I was there, a Protestant chaplain, they said, we, we're Jewish, we go to, we're born Jews, but we believe in, we, we believe in Jesus. There's a lot more of them that said it. I've had Jewish friends who said, their, their dad said to them, to the daughter, said, I know you love Jesus. I mean, they, we have that going on too. Well, yeah, and that's going to be covered in chapter 11. Paul says, I'm a Jew. Why does he say that? I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. That's what he's saying in Romans 11. He covers that. But he's just saying that it's a remnant. Remember, 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 in Elijah's time? How many Jews were there living in the northern kingdom of Israel? And they, it's a lot more than 7,000. We're talking millions. There were millions of Jews living in the northern and southern kingdom, and there were 7,000 that he had reserved that had not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. A remnant, what he says, chosen by grace. So yes, it's true that in every generation, there are some Jews that cross over from death to life, and they believe. But that's what we're dealing with here. Now it's Romans 9, 10, and 11, and I think the ending of this story is so glorious when it says in Romans 11, and so all Israel will be saved, that's a future, in my opinion, revival among the Jewish nation that are alive right before the second coming of Christ, that they will turn, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. What would be another word for godlessness? Godlessness. Unbelief. Would you think atheism? I think that's almost a literal synonym for godlessness. To have no gods is to be atheistic. I think that's the majority of the Jews I've known. They're materialistic, atheistic, cultural people. They, they have a cultural heritage, but it's not religious. So Paul's going to walk through all this, Romans 9, 10, 11. No one knows this problem better than Paul. No one. He's, he's immersed in it. And he studied it and he's giving us these truths. But this is a powerful, powerful issue. And for me, I think the thing is so amazing is this will be like the big firework show at the end of redemptive history when he turns the Jews finally to Christ, finally. And I think he will do that. I think that's the best way to understand the statement. And so all Israel will be saved. I don't know how else we could understand it. We'll get to that in due time. What would you estimate? That's in Romans 11, toward the end of Romans 11. How long do you think it'll take for us to get there? If we do a good job in Romans 9, 10, and then the first half of 11, what do you think? Next, next week, next, next month, all right, next year, all right? Well, who knows? We're not in any huge rush. But the issue here is Paul's primary concern here is not the ultimate condition of the Jews. It's not his ultimate concern. His ultimate concern is the honor of God. His ultimate concern is that the word of God not be seen to have failed. 
that God gets what he wants. That's the issue. And so we're going to walk through that. And people are uncomfortable with that. They're uncomfortable with God being the center of the show, that God's sovereignty is the center. They, 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 they are troubled with it. That's why this chapter is difficult for people. We're going to walk through it and try to understand it. Now, it begins here with an overflowing of emotion here. It's, it's, the passion is incredible. And I would say, as I, you know, I've been here 25 years, I would say that the sermon I preached in Romans 9, 1 through 5 was one of the hardest I've ever preached in my life. The reason was, it wasn't that it was difficult for me to understand. It was that it was impossible for me to match Paul's emotional state, honestly. How would you characterize Paul's emotions in Romans 9, 1 through 5? Rejected. He feels rejected. After all this suffering, after what Jesus has done, he feels rejected by the situation. Okay. Unceasing anguish. Why does he feel that sorrow and unceasing anguish? What is he worried about there? What is bringing him sorrow? I don't think it's his own personal rejection. I think he's concerned about their future. Their future. What, what is their future if they continue in this rebellion? He's, he's really, he is, he is like you and I as parents praying over that lost child here. And, and Jesus, more than anyone else in the Bible, made it plain what will happen to unbelievers beyond judgment day. It's simple. Hell. We're talking about hell. These unbelieving Jews are going to hell. Paul knows that. He understands we're talking about, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But these Jews are not in Christ Jesus. So there will be condemnation for them. What is condemnation? It's eternal conscious torment, Jesus said. He made it very plain. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what he will say to the to the accursed, to the condemned, both Jews and Gentiles, that's what he's going to say to them. This chapter de uh, depicts them as vessels of wrath. That's what's going to happen to them. And Paul's emotions concerning that are what? What is he feeling about the fact they're on their way to hell? What does he feel about that? I would, I would just, but I thought about this too. And, you know, I don't think... I can't imagine being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because Paul is he's a human being, necessarily he forms thoughts, but he's writing, and I think he's conscious of what he's writing. Mm -hmm. He's talking about this conscious eternal punishment. Mm -hmm. He knows the reason because he's going to write Romans eleven twenty six. He knows that the full measure of the Gentile has to come in. His friends, he has to understand this is God's sovereignty, so I'm sure he's in unbelievable awe mm -hmm. and fear and every other kind of emotion is <clears throat> pulsing through this poor guy. Yeah, it is. It's overpowering. Just look at the language. I speak the truth in Christ. My conscience confirms it. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. This is like solemn oaths he's taking. I'm telling you the truth. What truth? I have great sorrow in my heart for the Jews. That's what he's talking about. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart 
for my own people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He's very clear who he's talking about here. I have great sorrow for them. This is, I think, exactly like or in the pattern of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. When he says, if you, even you, had known what your redemption looked like, you would have avoided all of the judgments that are coming, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And now the Gentiles are going to come and they're going to pull this place to the ground. Or in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So it's sorrow. Jesus had it and Paul has it in the spirit of Christ. Immense sorrow over damnation. Now, when I wrote my book on heaven, I had to write a chapter on hell. I had to understand it. I do not believe there will be any sorrow in heaven over the damned. None, because there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Revelation 21.4. The sorrow is for now for those who are en route. You understand that? It's for those that are on that path. Enter through the narrow gate, Jesus said. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So you've got two different roads going to two different destinations. We can see that people, based on biblical truth, are on a highway to hell. They're heading there and sorrow and anguish should be poured out over their condition. Why would I say it should not be poured out over those that are condemned now? There is no biblical evidence for any. You know the the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that? The rich man dies and goes to hell. He's in torment. Remember that? And he wants uh, Lazarus to dip his finger in in the water, remember, and cool his tongue. Remember all that? And Abraham says, can't do it. You know, remember that in your life you had your good things. And Lazarus had nothing. Uh, But now he's with me and you're there in torment. Besides, there's a big chasm between us and you and no one can cross over either way. Remember all that? As I read Abraham's demeanor toward the rich man, do you sense great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart? Not at all. I don't sense any. He just says, basically, you're getting what you deserve. And now Lazarus is here with me. I think that's the, the, the feeling I have. And Jesus is the one that told that parable. All right. So I don't believe we'll spend a third of our heavenly day grieving over the damned and two thirds celebrating salvation and exploring the new heaven, new earth. That makes no sense to me. I just think it says there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Neither do I think we'll be out of step with God so that he's grieving over those that are in hell. And we are constantly celebrating our salvation and rejoicing in the new heaven, new earth. I think there will be literally no grief over those that are actually in hell. Therefore, I think that this grief and sorrow is for those who are en route. They're heading there, but they're not there yet. What's going to happen to our members? When we look around, we know those people are not there in heaven or we will know that they are at actually in hell. We're not just, it's not a process of elimination. But we don't have to talk about that right now, but I think that's where we're heading in Romans 9. 
there is a reason that the vessels of wrath were created by God. We're, we're going to get to that, but we're just not there yet. But that's what we're heading to in this chapter. There, there is no more solid meat in the entire Bible than Romans 9. There's, there's nothing harder to take, but it's in there, and he wants us to read it and study it and try to understand. So I believe that the chapter begins with sorrow and grief over those that are en route. Now, why, what benefit or what, what uh, value is that sorrow and unceasing anguish? How does it do any good? Why would the Holy Spirit incite people to feel sorrow and unceasing anguish over those en route to hell? Hopefully it motivates us to change that trajectory. Okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, same thing, motivation for evangelism. Has that been historically true, that fear of those that are en route to hell motivates missions? It motivates evangelism? It motivates efforts towards saving them? I think absolutely it does. Did it motivate Paul? Those people en route to hell, are they suitably fearful of their future condition? No, it says in Romans 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what does that mean? If there's no fear of God before their eyes, then as they're en route to hell, what are they feeling about their future? They don't feel anything. Do they have any fear about it? No, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. So I think that this, these verses teach us to have sorrow for people who don't have any sorrow for themselves, to have fear on behalf of people who should be fearing, but they're not. And on their behalf, we're going to sorrow. And on their behalf, we're going to fear. And then we're going to persuade. We're going to plead with them to turn from that path and find the, the enter through the narrow gate that leads to life. That's the purpose of this sorrow, I believe. Now, as you look at that, I found it convicting because I said I couldn't match Paul's emotion legitimately. I, I suppose I could act, but I didn't think that would be honoring to God. Suppose you read this and you say, I think I should feel for the, those that are heading, not just the Jews, but for lost Gentiles too, people that are on the road to this, I should feel what Paul's feeling, but I don't. What should you do then? What, what should we do if we read these and say, I think this is a legitimate sorrow that Paul is talking about here. I think I should feel it, but I honestly don't. What, what should we do about that? Okay. Okay. Anyone else? Pray to God, ask God to give us a heart for the lost. It's a good answer. Anyone else? Begs the question: Do you really appreciate from what you've been saved? Right? Are you really cognizant of what you've received? Can you can you return, you know, with a measure of, of what your own understanding of what what you've been forgiven? It definitely deepens our gratitude when we meditate on these themes. I think. It, I mean, does God want us to think about hell? Does He want us to think about people en route to damnation? Is this something that we should be considering? You're saying yes. Why, why do you say that? Why do you think that this is something God actually does want us to think about? Because it's right here in the chapter. He, he wants us to face facts. And I think he wants us to face facts for those who are not facing it for them. Their heads are in the sand. They're, they're being deceived. They're being lied to by Satan. 
And our, our job is say, you need to be, you need to know what really is happening. Let me tell you what is the truth about your condition, your situation. But it's very, very difficult to do. And so I think we need to go to God and be honest with, uh, with him about our hearts and say, Lord, I have to say, honestly, I see it. I understand why has, Paul has this sorrow. Paul's emotional state seems to have been worked in him by the Spirit. Would you say that he is Christ-like in this emotion? What does he say about it? What does he say he would do to remedy the situation? He wishes, he said, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of the Jews. What does that mean? He would take their place. He would be willing to go to hell if they could be saved. So that is a Christ-like, he's willing to substitute, he's willing to drink the cup of God's wrath on their behalf. That is a very Christ-like sentiment, isn't it? Similar to where he's wrestling with whether he would keep on living in the body or go to heaven, which is better by far. Remember in Philippians one, he said, it's better by far for me to depart and be with Christ, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I will remain in the body. That's like incarnational. Does that make sense? He's like, I would rather be here in this place of misery and suffering. And Paul had a hard life. I'd rather keep on having this hard life if it could benefit you. You see how Christ-like Paul is here. Now here he's saying, I could wish that I would drink the cup of God's wrath for all eternity if, if, if it could save the Jews. Now look at the language though. There's a grammatical aspect to this. What does he literally say? Does he say, I am going to be cut off from Christ? I could wish. Why does he use that language? It's a little odd. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Why does he say I could wish? It's kind of subjective, subjective language. Okay. What is he implying by using that language? I could wish that I... He can't do it. I can't do it. Why can't he do it? It's not possible. He just told us nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So he's one of those of whom it's true that he could never be cut off because he's one of those that would never, could never go through that. But there's a more, a weightier reason. That dying under the wrath of God has already been done by somebody else. What do we now need? Two messiahs? Two substitutionary atonements? Certainly not. Certainly not. And Paul would be screaming in like, no, that could never be. I know that it can't be Jesus plus Paul to save the Jews. That cannot be. He's just expressing an emotion here. You know what I'm saying? He's expressing a sense of solidarity with his people and a sense of grief over their condition, not a sense of like a messianic complex where he's going to do Jesus part two. That cannot be, it's impossible because he himself has been redeemed from that and will never suffer that wrath himself. And secondly, it would be dishonoring to Christ as though his death was insufficient. And so he said, but I want you to know that's how deeply I feel. Now, going back to the beginning, why does he use all this vow language? I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. That's a lot of like oath. I swear on a stack of Bibles 
that I'm telling you the truth. Why does he use all that language? He's trying to convince. Would it be surprising to people who knew Paul's history? What was Paul's history with the Jewish people? I mean, once he was converted, I mean. Once Paul was converted, what was his subsequent history with the Jewish, Jewish unbelievers? Huh? Okay, but what did that mean for him? What was his life like? Talking about unbelieving Jews, Paul's experience with unbelieving Jews. They ran him out of Damascus. They ran him out of Damascus. He had to be let down in a basket over the wall. Remember that? And that was just the start. Do you remember when um, uh, he started? He didn't start. He didn't start any riots. But there were. He. I mean, there are three riots connected with Paul in the book of. Romans, two of them are directly tied to the Jews. One of them isn't. It's because of the Artemis of the Ephesians. But the, uh, the two of them are riots, remember? And uh, they were going to rip him limb from limb. And so the Romans had to rescue him. And then Paul's nephew found out that a group of Jews had taken a vow not to eat or drink anything until they had assassinated Paul. Remember that? Do you remember in the book of Acts how Paul went from place to place in Northern Greece up there on Macedonia and then Thessalonica and all that. And he was hunted from pillar to post by Jews that went from one town to the next to stir up trouble for him. Remember how dedicated were these people? How would, would you, how would you say was their level of their commitment? They took oaths not to eat. They're willing to leave their homes to chase him and hunt him down and kill him. I believe Satan's behind all of that. Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil. Remember that? They were serving Satan. So do you think Satan was motivated to shut Paul down? Do you think there was any sense of, we need to stop this guy? I think Paul was Satan job one, top priority. I mean, he was writing some really helpful things that are now collected in something called the New Testament. So it'd be good to stop that writing career he's doing. He's also planting churches everywhere he goes. He's winning people to Christ everywhere he goes. He's an amazingly effective witness. We got to kill him. Satan's a murderer. They're serving Satan. Remember how it says in Revelation, they are of a synagogue of Satan. So if they're not serving God, they're serving somebody. And we know they're serving, they're serving Satan. Jesus said it. And so I believe there's a demonic aspect to their hatred of Paul, but they were highly committed to killing him. They were highly committed to persecuting him. They hated him. And yet, what is he saying about them here? He's saying, I would trade my salvation for theirs. And I know you don't believe it. I know it's hard to believe, but let me tell you something that's true. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit that I have great son. I'm sorry for them. I'm not worried about myself. I'm not worried about them beating me up or hating me. I'm not worried about my self-esteem. I'm worried about them. I'm worried about the fact they're going to hell. That's what I'm worried about. So as I look at that, and I think about our, let's just translate it to First Baptist Durham. How does this relate to our church life here? How does it relate to us in terms of our calling and our mission here in Durham? We live amongst a bunch of people who are on the same road. Yes, we do. You know, Pastor, it's getting cold outside. And um, we're going to have a number of uh, people joining us on Sunday morning that are on the street and um, not necessarily folks we would all have over for dinner, but it, it reminds us that 
they are souls and, and they are worthy of the same witness and the same message and the same gospel. And I, I it, it, it creates a burden in my heart for these, these men and women. Amen. I thank you for saying that. I think what I need to do is I, you know, take what you said and, and let's just say, look, something's wrong with me. All right. I don't see reality like I should. I don't see time and history and my days and my life like I should. I don't see lost people like I should. And so I would ask God that you would work in me a, a, an increasing measure of grief and anguish over lostness. I think the greater thing to ask is give me a zeal for your honor and your glory. That's higher than grief over lostness. I think we can ask for all of it. Paul clearly, his top priority is that God's word has not failed. That we would have a similar zeal for the glory of God, the honor of his name, etc. Like the biggest problem with the Jews, unbelieving Jews, is they're stripping God of his glory. Isn't it? I mean, they are not glorifying the God who made them. That's the problem. Specifically, they're not glorifying his son. They don't see anything worthwhile in Jesus. And we should care about that. That should really bother us that Jesus is stripped of his honor and glory. But secondarily, we should care about where this is, what it's going to mean for them. So think about the two great commandments. First and foremost, we should care about God and that he's not glorified. Secondly, we should love our neighbors ourselves and say, if I were one of them and I realized what my condition were, I would want to be rescued from it. I'd want to be delivered from it. So I think that's how we should respond and we should do it in prayer. And then we should ask God to give us opportunities. Like, I think, I think we feel this more when we are immersed in relationships with non-Christians. I think it's easy to just not know very many non-Christians. We stay away from them. We don't get to know them. It's kind of mutual. We each, we each think the other's crazy, all right? Kind of like, I think they're crazy to not believe in Jesus. They think I'm crazy for living like, like we do. So yeah, I would say so. But I would say getting to know lost people helps with this, doesn't it? I mean, to, to feel sorrow. It's not being preached today. What's that? Hell, or any of this that we're talking about. We need to pray for preachers who will do that. Well, I think, yeah, I think in this chapter, we're going to have a chance to look at that. We're going to look at what it means to be a vessel of wrath, um, because the wrath is hell, ultimately. Andy, I think I was yeah. most convicted by what you shared at the end there, why Paul would use all of these oaths to assure his readers that he actually feels this way about the people he's talking about. I think particularly for us today, there's a lot of folks hurling insults at Christians and using all kinds of rhetorical attacks and even beyond. And I think it, it would be surprising for Christians to not respond in kind. Sure. And often, even in my own heart, I feel the tendency to want to lash out rather than have sorrow or pity for people who have different views on the world, recognizing that flows from their their state, their lostness. And yeah. so I, I'm convicted by that because my heart isn't usually first tuned to have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. It's usually great anger and increasing frustration sure. at these people rather than thinking they're bound for an eternity apart from God and I want to see them saved.
Yeah, I mean, I talked to Daphne. My daughter is a freshman at UNC Chapel Hill, and she said on Halloween, some group on the campus has a tradition of a mock crucifixion in which someone dresses up like Jesus and they mock the death of Jesus on the cross. And she saw it as she was walking by, and it made her very angry. And uh, I think that is a reasonable, I mean, there are very few times that we feel righteous anger. That would be one. We know that other groups on campus, if they were so reviled and so mocked and all that, would it, they would never stand for it for a second. Other religions, other groups, um, but Christians. But I think to be able, Wes, to pick up on what you're saying, to look at that scene, and it's be hard to even look at it, but to look at and say, what's behind it? What's going on in the hearts of the people? And what does it say about their condition? And to say, they're in trouble, you know? I mean, if you think about it, using the emblems of Christianity, the cross, which is the holiest day, that in the empty tomb, the holiest issue of our faith, and to use it for overt blasphemy and mocking, is not much different than what Belshazzar did with the articles that were taken from the temple and he used them to praise the gods of wood, iron, bronze, and stone. And then the hand appeared on the wall saying, you're done, you're finished. It's, it's very offensive. But then you think about what does it say about the spirit condition, spiritual condition of those? And they're laughing and they're mocking and all that. And they're all that. It's like, I think this chapter is a proper response. You know, there's sorrow because they're, you know, they're under the wrath of God. All right. So the, he, the emotional state, Paul's reaction, he said, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. It's an interesting expression, cut off from Christ. Um, you know, what do you think about that phrase? I could wish that I were cursed and cut off from Christ. The way that Paul's Jewish parallelism works is that's the same thing. To be cursed equals to be cut off from Christ. But what does that phrase mean to you to be cut off from Christ? Not know him. To not to not know him. Okay. Um, that's exactly where I was going. I'm the vine. You're the branches. All right. So to be cut off means to have no life in you. Right. Later in Romans 11, he's going to use that image of a cultivated olive tree and branches that are cut off from it. So there's no life-giving sap. There's no life. Paul says, I'd be willing to be cut off and have no life in myself, but specifically to have no relationship with Jesus. Think what Jesus was to Paul. I mean, he says in Philippians 3, all I want is to know him better. If I could just know him, if I could see his glory. Say again. He talks about the power of his resurrection. Just to know him. And Paul's saying, I'd be willing to never know him again. And it's just an amazing statement that he's making. That's what hell is for Paul. It's cursed, no relationship with Christ, no beauty, no honor, no glory, no love, none of that. I'm willing to go into that dark place for the sake of my people. That's what he's saying. He was the evangelist to the, the, the Gentiles. But do you think he felt, do you, have you seen anything in the gospel to say that he felt they were guilty? parent that has a wayward child is going to feel guilty. They think they should have done something. Guilty for what? That Paul felt guilty? Yeah. For what, though? The Jews not coming to Christ. I don't sense that. I sense uh, obligation. I think he has a sense of responsibility. 
And, and his pattern was always to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So wherever he would go, the first place he would go, if there was a synagogue, was there. And he would go reason with the Jews there. And the same thing happened every time. A small number of them would listen and the rest would revile. I mean, isn't that the pattern? It was the same thing every time in every city. And then he would take that small remnant and go work with them. And then he'd go to the Gentiles and a big effusion of believers would come in from the Gentiles. I mean, think about that. The Jews have been prepared by these advantages that he lists here, prepared to believe in Jesus for hundreds of years. And they rejected him. The Gentiles have been prepared by their paganism to reject Jesus for hundreds of years. And many of them believed. It's really quite remarkable. It's exactly the opposite of what you would have thought. Well, look at the advantages he talks about. He says, I could wish that I were uh, for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He's very clear he's talking about, but he uses these terms because of his affection for them. They're his family. They're his kin. There is a, a solidarity of, of suffering that the Jews have gone through. They've been persecuted. They've gone through the two exiles, the Assyrian and the Babylonian exile. They've been hated on almost every community they've ever been in. And so there is this unity of their, my brother Israelites. He has that sense, the people of Israel, I would be, if I could, cut off for, for their sake. And then he lists their advantages. And we have to be careful uh, to understand them properly. Theirs is the adoption of sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. So you look at that and it's like, well, if they have all those things, what do they need, right? Well, look at the first thing he says is uh, first advantage he's speaking of. What is the first advantage he talks about? Adoption. Well, wait a minute. Um, isn't that what we just discussed in Romans 8? That, that we are adopted as his sons or, or in John chapter 1, it says those who believed him to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And no, that's not what this is. If that were that, there's no problem here. They are in the family of God. That's not what he means here. Then what does he mean? The nation as a whole, was adopted as God's son in some sense. Didn't he say to Pharaoh, I told you, let my son go. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go. But because you didn't, I'll kill your son. Didn't he say that? So what does he mean? Israel is my firstborn son. He's saying, I have the stance toward the nation of Israel as a father does toward a a son. And he says the same thing in Deuteronomy 1. He says, I carried you all the way you went from Israel, I mean, from Egypt, right to the border of the promised land as a father carries his son. Like you imagine a toddler that can't walk another step. And the dad picks that kid up and puts the kid on his shoulders and carries him the distance, right? Deuteronomy 131. I carried you on my shoulders like a father carries his son. Does that mean every single one of those Israelites is going to heaven? No, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, their bodies were scattered, or 1 Corinthians, their bodies were scattered all over the desert. Most of them were rebels. Most of them were golden calf worshipers. They were not believers. Most of that nation died in the desert and, and through, through their unbelief. 
So the adoption there is a national adoption of God as father to the nation as a whole. It doesn't guarantee individual salvation for each member of that nation. The same thing is true of the divine glory. What is the divine glory? It's the glory cloud. It's the pillar of fire and the pillar of of cloud, right? It's the glory that filled the tabernacle when it was done being made. Remember that? The Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory of God comes and fills that place. Did everyone who saw that go to heaven? Just because you saw the glory cloud? No, as a matter of fact, once the glory cloud showed up, he says, I'm going to kill these rebels. All right. So just because you're seeing the glory, it's like God is showing up. That's all that means. And sometimes God is showing up to do some damage. But they saw it, though. Was it an advantage to see it? It's a huge advantage. Other nations didn't have that. They weren't God's firstborn son. The Ammonites weren't. The Perizzites and Hivites definitely weren't. But Israel was God's firstborn son. That's what he's saying. So they have that advantage of that relationship with God. They have the the experience of seeing the glory of God, not once, but many times in their history. When Solomon dedicated the temple, didn't the glory fill it? They couldn't, none of the priests could go in, remember? Was everyone there thereby saved because they saw the glory cloud? No, but it is an advantage, all right? He's just listing advantages. Theirs is the adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenants. What's that? Abrahamic covenant, right? Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, those three in particular. What is a covenant? What does that mean, covenant? What's that? The promise. It's a binding agreement between two or more parties. Is there an advantage to that covenant? It's a big deal. God made a covenant with Abraham, right? That was a big deal. The Mosaic covenant was a big deal. They had the advantage of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the Mosaic law. These are advantages that came to the Jews. By the way, if you look back uh, chapter 3, um, verse 1, uh, and two, someone read that three, one, and two. I know we're almost done, but three, one, and two. Romans three, one, and two. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. Okay, just stop there. Do you see a similar sentiment here? It's the exact same sentiment. He's asking the exact same question. What advantage is there in being a Jew? And what's his answer? None. No. Much in every way. Big advantages for the Jews. They just don't save their souls. That's all he's saying. They don't save them. That's why he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish. And let me ask you a question. Do you think there are some evangelicals who think that you don't need to evangelize Jews because they're safe as Jews? Have you ever heard anything like that? I've heard some. Leave the Jews alone. They have like dispensationalists or they're whatever they think, you know, that's just plan A, plan B. How would Paul in the spirit of this chapter answer that? Is Paul thinking the Jews are fine and we don't need to evangelize them? I don't get that from Romans 9 here, friends. Paul's going way out on a limb in every city trying to save Jews. Is is he doing that because they're fine the way they are? Not at all. So just because we, we come to this final statement, all Israel be saved, that doesn't mean every Jew that has ever lived on planet Earth will be in heaven. That's not what that statement means. That's why Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish, because there is a threat of hell. 
Matter of fact, the only person that we know by name that's in hell is Judas because he was a son of perdition and he's Jewish. All right. So just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're safe. Not at all. But there are these advantages. And Paul says, look at these advantages. But if anything, it just makes it worse for them um, because they have these advantages, but they still don't um, believe. Um, so let's finish the list of advantages. We'll pick it up next time. Theirs is the receiving of the law, which is the Ten Commandments and the entire Pentateuch, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law. That's an advantage. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's a big advantage to have the word of God. It doesn't save your soul. But they had the law. They just didn't keep it. That Paul says that. It's, you know, the law is value if you keep it. They didn't keep it, but they have it. It's an advantage. And he says they have the temple worship, the setting up of the tabernacle, and then Solomon, the temple. There's an advantage there. And then the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the heritage of their, of their faith. They walk by faith, and they have that advantage. And then he says, from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. So they are, it's, Jesus was Jewish. But notice how he ends it. Jesus is what, according to this statement here? But what is he called? He's not just blessed forever. He is God. Did the Jews believe that, that Jesus is God? No, that's why he says that. That's the problem here. That's the stumbling block, the deity of Christ. That's the thing they couldn't accept. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this evening, this chance to begin walking through this very deep chapter. Father, I pray that we would take the spiritual lessons that, that you've pressed in our hearts tonight, specifically the convicting lesson, that we do not grieve over the loss the way we should, that we don't sorrow over them the way Paul did. We don't have the kind of grief and sorrow in our hearts that, that would motivate sacrificial evangelism and missions in our generation. We don't. But Lord, we want to. We yearn for it. We hunger and thirst for this righteousness. We ask that you would work in First Baptist Durham in such a way that we would have a genuine sorrow over lost people, both Jews and Gentiles in our community, that need to hear the gospel and that it would motivate us to take risks and to be bold in evangelism so that we can see them rescued from hell and brought safely into the kingdom of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.